Dead Souls, Part One, Chapter Three, Section One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol, translated by D. J. Hogarth. Part One. Chapter Three, Section One. Meanwhile, Chichikov, seated in his britchka and bowling along the turnpike, was feeling greatly pleased with himself. From the preceding chapter, the reader will have gathered the principal subject of his bent and inclinations. Wherefore, it is no matter for wonder that his body and his soul had ended by becoming wholly immersed therein. To all appearances, the thoughts, the calculations, and the projects which were now reflected in his face partook of a pleasant nature, since momentarily they kept leaving behind them a satisfied smile. Indeed, so engrossed was he, that he never noticed that his coachman, elated with the hospitality of Manilov's domestics, was making remarks of a didactic nature to the off-horse of the troika, a skewbald. This skewbald was a knowing animal, and made only a show of pulling, whereas its comrades, the middle horse, a bay, and known as the assessor, owing to his having been acquired from a gentleman of that rank, and the near horse, a roan, would do their work gallantly, and even evince in their eyes the pleasure which they derived from their exertions. "'Ah, you rascal, you rascal! I'll get the better of you!' ejaculated Selifan, as he sat up and gave the lazy one a cut with his whip. "'You know your business all right, you German pantaloon. The bay is a good fellow, and does his duty, and I'll give him a bit over his feed, for he is a horse to be respected. And the assessor too is a good horse. But what are you shaking your ears for? You are a fool, so just mind when you're spoken to. Tis good advice I'm giving you, you blockhead.' Ah, you can travel when you like. And he gave the animal another cut, and then shouted to the trio, Gee up, my beauties! And drew his whip gently across the backs of the skewball's comrades, not as a punishment, but as a sign of his approval. That done, he addressed himself to the skewball again. Do you think, he cried, that I don't see what you're doing? You can behave quite decently when you like, and make a man respect you. With that he fell to recalling certain reminiscences. "'They were nice folk, those folk at the gentleman's yonder,' he mused. "'I do love a chap with a man when he is a good sort. With a man of that kind I'm always hail-fellow well met, and glad to drink a glass of tea with him, or to eat a biscuit. One can't help respecting a decent fellow. For instance, this gentleman, why, everyone looks up to him for he has been in the government service, and is a collegiate counsellor. Thus soliloquising, he passed to more remote abstractions, until, had Chichikov been listening, he would have learnt a number of interesting details concerning himself. However, his thoughts were wholly occupied with his own subject, so much so that not until a loud clap of thunder awoke him from his reverie did he glance around him. The sky was completely covered with clouds, and the dusty turnpike beginning to be sprinkled with drops of rain. At length a second and a nearer and a louder peal resounded, and the rain descended as from a bucket. 
falling slantwise, it beat upon one side of the basket-work of the tilt, until the splashings began to spurt into his face, and he found himself forced to draw the curtains, fitted with circular openings, through which to obtain a glimpse of the wayside view, and to shout to Selifan to quicken his pace. Upon that the coachman, interrupted in the middle of his harangue, bethought him that no time was to be lost, wherefore, extracting from under the box-seat a piece of old blanket, he covered over his sleeves, resumed the reins, and cheered on his threefold team, which, it may be said, had so completely succumbed to the influence of the pleasant lassitude induced by Selifan's discourse, that it had taken to scarcely placing one leg before the other. Unfortunately, Selifan could not clearly remember whether two turnings had been passed or three. Indeed, on collecting his faculties, and dimly recalling the lie of the road, he became filled with a shrewd suspicion that a very large number of turnings had been passed. But since, at moments which call for a hasty decision, a Russian is quick to discover what may conceivably be the best course to take, our coachman put away from him all ulterior reasoning, and turning to the right at the next cross-road, shouted, "'Hi, my beauties!' and set off at a gallop. Never for a moment did he stop to think whither the road might lead him. It was long before the clouds had discharged their burden, and meanwhile the dust on the road became kneaded into mire, and the horse's task of pulling the britchka heavier and heavier. Also Chichikov had taken alarm at his continued failure to catch sight of Sobakovitch's country house. According to his calculations, it ought to have been reached long ago. He gazed about him on every side, but the darkness was too dense for the eye to pierce. Serifan, he exclaimed, leaning forward in the britchka. "'What is it, Barin?' replied the coachman. "'Can you see the country house anywhere?' "'No, Barin.' After which, with a flourish of the whip, the man broke into a sort of endless drawling song. In that song everything had a place. By everything I mean both the various encouraging and stimulating cries with which Russian folk urge on their horses, and a random, unpremeditated selection of adjectives. Meanwhile Chichikov began to notice that the britchka was swaying violently, and dealing him occasional bumps. Consequently, he suspected that it had left the road, and was being dragged over a ploughed field. Upon Selifan's mind there appeared to have dawned a similar inkling, for he had ceased to hold forth. "'You rascal! What road are you following?' inquired Chichikov. "'I don't know,' retorted the coachman. "'What can a man do at a time of night when the darkness won't let him even see his whip?' And as Selifan spoke, the vehicle tilted to an angle, which left Chichikov no choice but to hang on with hands and teeth. At length he realised the fact that Selifan was drunk. "'Stop, stop, or you'll upset us!' he shouted to the fellow. "'No, no, Barine, replied Selifan. "'How could I upset you? To upset people is wrong. I know that very well, and should never dream of such conduct.' Here he started to turn the vehicle round a little, and kept on doing so until the britchka capsized on to its side, and Chichikov landed in the mud on his hands and knees. Fortunately, Stelifan succeeded in stopping the horses, although they would have stopped of themselves, seeing that they were utterly worn out. This unforeseen catastrophe evidently astonished their driver, 
slipping from the box, he stood resting his hands against the side of the britchka, while Chichikov tumbled and floundered about in the mud, in a vain endeavour to wriggle clear of the stuff. "'Ah, oh, you!' said Selifan meditatively to the britchka, "'to think of upsetting us like this!' "'You're as drunk as a lord!' exclaimed Chichikov. "'No, no, Badin! Drunk, indeed! Why, I know my manners too well! A word or two with a friend! That is all I've taken! Anyone may talk with a decent man when he meets him! There's nothing wrong in that! Also we had a snack together! There's nothing wrong in a snack, especially a snack with a decent man!' "'What did I say to you when last you got drunk?' asked Chichikov. "'Have you forgotten what I said then?' "'No, no, Barin, how could I forget it? "'I know what is what, and I know that it is not right to get drunk. "'All that I've been having is a word or two with a decent man, "'for the reason that, well, if I lay the whip about you, "'you will know then how to talk to a decent fellow, I'll warrant.' "'As you please, Barin,' replied the complacent Selifan. "'Should you whip me, you will whip me, and I shall have nothing to complain of.' "'Why should you not whip me if I deserve it? "'Tis for you to do as you like. "'Whippings are necessary sometimes, "'for a peasant often plays the fool, "'and discipline ought to be maintained. "'If I have deserved it, beat me. "'Why should you not?' "'This reasoning seemed at the moment irrefutable, "'and Chichikov said nothing more. "'Fortunately, fate had decided to take pity on the pair, "'for from afar their ears caught the barking of a dog.' Plucking up courage, Chichikov gave orders for the britchka to be righted, and the horses to be urged forward. And since a Russian driver has at least this merit, that, owing to a keen sense of smell being able to take the place of eyesight, he can, if necessary, drive at random, and yet reach a destination of some sort, Selifan succeeded, though powerless to discern a single object, in directing his steeds to a country house nearby, and that with such a certainty of instinct, that it was not until the shafts had collided with a garden wall, and thereby made it clear that to proceed another pace was impossible, that he stopped. All that Chichikov could discern through the thick veil of pouring rain was something which resembled a veranda. So he dispatched Selifan to search for the entrance gates, and that process would have lasted indefinitely, had it not been shortened by the circumstance that, in Russia, the place of a Swiss footman is frequently taken by watch-dogs, of which animals a number now proclaimed the traveller's presence so loudly that Chichikov found himself forced to stop his ears. Next a light gleamed in one of the windows, and filtered in a thin stream to the garden wall, thus revealing the whereabouts of the entrance gates, whereupon Selifan fell to knocking at the gates, until the bolts of the house-door were withdrawn, and there issued therefrom a figure clad in a rough cloak. "'Who is that knocking? What have you come for?' shouted the hoarse voice of an elderly woman. "'We are travellers, good mother,' said Chichikov. "'Pray allow us to spend the night here.' "'Out upon you for a pair of gadabouts,' retorted the old woman. "'A fine time of night to be arriving. "'We don't keep an hotel, mind you. "'This is a lady's residence.' "'But what are we to do, mother? "'We have lost our way, "'and cannot spend the night out of doors in such weather.' "'No, we cannot. "'The night is dark and cold,' added Selifan. "'Hold your tongue, you fool!' exclaimed Chichikov. "'Who are you, then?' inquired the old woman. 
a dvorianin, good mother. Somehow the word dvorianin seemed to give the old woman food for thought. Wait a moment, she said, and I'll tell the mistress. Two minutes later she returned with a lantern in her hand. The gates were opened, and a light glimmered in a second window. Entering the courtyard, the britchka halted before a moderate-sized mansion. The darkness did not permit of very accurate observation being made, but, apparently, the windows only of one half of the building were illuminated, while a quagmire in front of the door reflected the beams from the same. Meanwhile the rain continued to beat sonorously down upon the wooden roof, and could be heard trickling into a water-butt, nor for a single moment did the dogs cease to bark with all the strength of their lungs. One of them, throwing up its head, kept venting a howl of such energy and duration that the animal seemed to be howling for a handsome wager, while another, cutting in between the yelpings of the first animal, kept restlessly reiterating, like a postman's bell, the notes of a very young puppy. Finally, an old hound, which appeared to be gifted with a peculiarly robust temperament, kept supplying the part of contrabasso, so that his growls resembled the rumbling of a bass singer when a chorus is in full cry, and the tenors are rising on tiptoe in their efforts to compass a particularly high note, and the whole body of choristers are wagging their heads before approaching a climax, and this contrabasso alone, is tucking his bearded chin into his collar, and sinking almost to a squatting posture on the floor, in order to produce a note which shall cause the windows to shiver and their panes to crack. Naturally, from a canine chorus of such executants, it might reasonably be inferred that the establishment was one of the utmost respectability. To that, however, our damp, cold hero gave not a thought, for all his mind was fixed upon bed. Indeed, the britchka had hardly come to a standstill before he leapt out upon the doorstep, missed his footing, and came within an ace of falling. To meet him there issued a female, younger than the first, but very closely resembling her, and on his being conducted to the parlour, a couple of glances showed him that the room was hung with old striped curtains, and ornamented with pictures of birds and small antique mirrors, the latter set in dark frames which were carved to resemble scrolls of foliage. Behind each mirror was stuck either a letter or an old pack of cards or a stocking, while on the wall hung a clock with a flowered dial. More, however, Chichikov could not discern, for his eyelids were as heavy as though smeared with treacle. Presently the lady of the house herself entered, an elderly woman in a sort of nightcap, hastily put on, and a flannel neck-wrap. She belonged to that class of lady landowners, who are for ever lamenting failures of the harvest and their losses thereby, to the class who, drooping their heads despondently, are all the while stuffing money into striped purses, which they keep hoarded in the drawers of cupboards. Into one purse they will stuff rouble pieces, into another half-roubles, and into a third tchetvyertachki, although from their mean you would suppose that the cupboard contained only linen and nightshirts and skeins of wool, and the piece of shabby material which is destined, should the old gown become scorched during the baking of holiday cakes and other dainties, or should it fall into pieces of itself, to become converted into a new dress. 
but the gown never does get burnt or wear out, for the reason that the lady is too careful, wherefore the piece of shabby material reposes in its unmade-up condition until the priest advises that it be given to the niece of some widowed sister, together with a quantity of other such rubbish. Chichikov apologised for having disturbed the household with his unexpected arrival. "'Not at all, not at all,' replied the lady. "'But in what dreadful weather God has brought you hither! "'What wind and what rain! "'You could not help losing your way. "'Pray excuse us for being unable to make better preparations for you at this time of night.' Suddenly there broke in upon the hostess's word the sound of a strange hissing, a sound so loud that the guest started in alarm, and the more so, seeing that it increased until the room seemed filled with adders. On glancing upwards, however, he recovered his composure, for he perceived the sound to be emanating from the clock, which appeared to be in a mind to strike. To the hissing sound there succeeded a wheezing one, until, putting forth its best efforts, the thing struck two, with as much clatter as though someone had been hitting an iron pot with a cudgel. That done, the pendulum returned to its right-left, right-left oscillation. Chichikov thanked his hostess kindly, and said that he needed nothing, and she must not put herself about. Only for rest was he longing, though also he should like to know whither he had arrived, and whether the distance to the country-house of landowner Sobakovitch was anything very great. To this the lady replied that she had never so much as heard the name, since no gentleman of the name resided in the locality. "'But at least you are acquainted with landowner Manilov,' continued Chichikov. "'No. Who is he?' "'Another landed proprietor, madam. Well, neither have I heard of him. No such landowner lives hereabouts.' Then who are your local landowners? Bobrov, Svinin, Kanapatyev, Khapakin, Trepakin, and Pyashakov. Are they rich men? No, none of them. One of them may own twenty souls, and another thirty. But of gentry who own a hundred, there are none. Chichikov reflected that he had indeed fallen into an aristocratic wilderness. At all events, is the town far away? he inquired. "'About sixty versts. "'How sorry I am that I have nothing for you to eat. "'Should you care to drink some tea?' "'I thank you, good mother, but I require nothing beyond a bed. "'Well, after such a journey, you must indeed be needing rest, "'so you shall lie upon this sofa. "'Fatinya, bring a quilt and some pillows and sheets. "'What weather God has sent us, and what dreadful thunder! Ever since sunset I have had a candle burning before the icon in my bedroom. My God! Why, your back and sides are as muddy as a boar's. However have you managed to get into such a state? That I am nothing worse than muddy is indeed fortunate, since, but for the Almighty, I should have had my ribs broken. Dear, dear, to think of all that you must have been through. Had I not better wipe your back? I thank you, I thank you, but you need not trouble. Merely be so good as to tell your maid to dry my clothes. Do you hear that, Fatinya? said the hostess, turning to a woman who is engaged in dragging in a feather bed, and deluging the room with feathers. Take this coat and this vest, and after drying them before the fire, just as we used to do for your late master, give them a good rub, and fold them up neatly. Very well, mistress, said Fatinya, 
spreading some sheets over the bed and arranging the pillows. "'Now your bed is ready for you,' said the hostess to Chichikov. "'Good night, dear sir. I wish you good night. Is there anything else that you require? Perhaps you would like to have your heels tickled before retiring to rest. Never could my late husband get to sleep without that having been done.' But the guest declined the proffered heel-tickling, and, on his hostess taking her departure, hastened to divest himself of his clothing, both upper and under, and to hand the garments to Fetinia. She wished him good-night, and removed the wet trappings, after which he found himself alone. Not without satisfaction did he eye his bed, which reached almost to the ceiling. Clearly Fetinia was a past mistress in the art of beating up such a couch, and, as the result, he had no sooner mounted it with the aid of a chair than it sank well-nigh to the floor, and the feathers, squeezed out of their proper confines, flew hither and thither into every corner of the apartment. Nevertheless he extinguished the candle, covered himself over with the chintz quilt, snuggled down beneath it, and instantly fell asleep. Next day it was late in the morning before he awoke. Through the window the sun was shining into his eyes, and the flies, which overnight had been roosting quietly on the walls and ceiling, now turned their attention to the visitor. One settled on his lip, another on his ear, a third hovered as though intending to lodge in his very eye, and a fourth had the temerity to alight just under his nostrils. In his drowsy condition he inhaled the latter insect, sneezed violently, and so returned to consciousness. He glanced around the room, and perceived that not all the pictures were representative of birds, since among them hung also a portrait of Kutuzov, and an oil-painting of an old man in a uniform with red facings, such as were worn in the days of the Emperor Paul. At this moment the clock uttered its usual hissing sound, and struck ten, while a woman's face peered in at the door, but at once withdrew, for the reason that, with the object of sleeping as well as possible, Chichikov had removed every stitch of his clothing. Somehow the face seemed to him familiar, and he set himself to recall whose it could be. At length he recollected that it was the face of his hostess. His clothes he found lying, clean and dry, beside him, so he dressed and approached the mirror, meanwhile sneezing again with such vehemence that a cock which happened at the moment to be near the window, which was situated at no great distance from the ground, chuckled a short, sharp phrase. Probably it meant, in the bird's alien tongue, "'Good morning to you!' Chichikov retorted by calling the bird a fool, and then himself approached the window to look at the view. It appeared to comprise a poulterer's premises. At all events, the narrow yard in front of the window was full of poultry and other domestic creatures, of game-fowls and barn-door-fowls, with, among them, a cock which strutted with measured gait, and kept shaking its comb, and tilting its head as though it were trying to listen to something. Also a sow and her family were helping to grace the scene. First she rooted among a heap of litter, then, in passing, she ate up a young pullet. Lastly, she proceeded carelessly to munch some pieces of melon rind. To this small yard, or poultry run, a length of planking served as a fence, while beyond it lay a kitchen-garden containing cabbages, onions, potatoes, beetroots, and other household vegetables. 
Also the garden contained a few stray fruit trees that were covered with netting to protect them from the magpies and sparrows, flocks of which were even then wheeling and darting from one spot to another. For the same reason a number of scarecrows with outstretched arms stood reared on long poles, with, surmounting one of the figures, a cast-off cap of the hostesses. Beyond the garden again there stood a number of peasants' huts. Though scattered, instead of being arranged in regular rows, these appeared to Chichikov's eye to comprise well-to-do inhabitants, since all the rotten planks in their roofing had been replaced with new ones, and none of their doors were askew, and such of their tilt-sheds as faced him evinced evidence of a presence of a spare wagon, in some cases almost a new one. "'This lady owns by no means a poor village,' said Chichikov to himself, wherefore he decided then and there to have a talk with his hostess, and to cultivate her closer acquaintance. Accordingly, he peeped through the chink of the door, whence her head had recently protruded, and seeing her seated at a tea-table, entered and greeted her with a cheerful, kindly smile. "'Good morning, dear sir,' she responded as she rose. "'How have you slept?' She was dressed in better style than she had been on the previous evening. That is to say, she was now wearing a gown of some dark colour, and lacked her nightcap, and had swathed her neck in something stiff. "'I have slept exceedingly well,' replied Chichikov, seating himself upon a chair. "'And how are you, good madam?' "'But poorly, my dear sir.' "'And why so?' "'Because I cannot sleep. A pain has taken me in my middle, and my legs from the ankles upwards are aching as though they were broken. That will pass, that will pass, good mother. You must pay no attention to it. God grant that it may pass. However, I've been rubbing myself with lard and turpentine. What sort of tea will you take? In this jar I have some of the scented kind. Excellent, good mother. Then I will take that. Probably the reader will have noticed that for all his expressions of solicitude, Chichikov's tone towards his hostess partook of a freer, a more unceremonious nature than that which he had adopted towards Madame Manilov. And here I should like to assert that howsoever much, in certain respects, we Russians may be surpassed by foreigners, at least we surpass them in adroitness of manner. In fact, the various shades and subtleties of our social intercourse defy enumeration. A Frenchman or a German would be incapable of envisaging and understanding all its peculiarities and differences, for his tone in speaking to a millionaire differs but little from that which he employs towards a small tobacconist, and that in spite of the circumstance that he is accustomed to cringe before the former. With us, however, things are different. In Russian society there exist clever folk who can speak in one manner to a landowner possessed of two hundred peasant souls, and in another to a landowner possessed of three hundred, and in another to a landowner possessed of five hundred. In short, up to the number of a million souls, the Russian will have ready for each landowner a suitable mode of address. For example, suppose that somewhere there exists a government office and that in that office there exists a director. I would beg of you to contemplate him as he sits among his myrmidons. 
sheer nervousness will prevent you from uttering a word in his presence so great are the pride and superiority depicted on his countenance also were you to sketch him you would be sketching a veritable prometheus for his glance is as that of an eagle and he walks with measured stately stride yet no sooner will the eagle have left the room to seek the study of his superior officer than he will go scurrying along papers held close to his nose like any partridge but in society and at the evening party should the rest of those present be of lesser rank than himself the prometheus will once more become prometheus and the man who stands a step below him will treat him in a way never dreamt of by ovid seeing that each fly is of lesser account than its superior fly and becomes in the presence of the latter even as a grain of sand surely that is not ivan petrovitch you will say of such and such a man as you regard him ivan petrovitch is tall whereas this man is small and spare ivan petrovitch has a loud deep voice and never smiles whereas this man whoever he may be is twittering like a sparrow and smiling all the time yet approach and take a good look at the fellow and you will see that it is ivan petrovitch alack alack will be the only remark you can make end of part one chapter three section one